Hello, everyone, and welcome to Novel. This is your host, Caleb Linville. Today, I am excited to present episode six of When the Mountains Called. This episode is a little bit different from the previous episodes and was a whole lot of fun to put together, so I hope you really enjoy it. And for next week's commentary episode, we will have a very special guest, the author herself, Shannon Baker. I'm sure she will have a lot of interesting insights into how this story came about, and then also just about the story itself. So be sure to tune in for that. Novel is always looking for new, exciting, and thought-provoking stories to present on our podcast. If you have a story or a story idea that you would like to share with us for consideration for future seasons, please contact Novel at clinville at novelpodcast.net. That's C-L-I-N-V-I-L-L-E at novelpodcast.net. Or you can visit our website, novelpodcast.net, for more information. Welcome to Crossroads Cantina. It sits somewhere between time and space, welcoming patrons from every walk of life. Come join me to hear their stories. Crossroads Cantina is a fiction podcast featuring narrated short stories and the occasional full cast audio drama episode. Head on over to www.crossroadscantinapodcast.com to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. This is your house. Do you recognize it? Yes, you do. The long, single-paneled boards, gray-brown after withstanding the sleet of winter and the blaring sun of summer. The faded, cotton-blue curtains, which you tied back because they were hers, and reminded you too much of her eyes. The cemented foundation of limestone at the base, mottled green and white and rubbed with dirt from the gardens around this little home. You scrubbed this same limestone the summer she died, because it was the one thing you could make as good as new. Remember how your fingers bled? You cleaned that up too. And the gardens. She would be proud. You made sure that she would be proud. But you hid the curtains, and you got rid of the horses, the ones she used to ride, because they reminded you of her. The fields are still green, but the grass is long, and it climbs up the fence you put in 365 days after it happened. That fence, one thing you changed. It keeps people out, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're now one of them. This house. Do you recognize it? The gardens are still here, with turnips and tomatoes and carrots and those snow peas she used to eat by the fistful. The apple tree is still there, way out in the field behind the house, and the fraying yellow gingham hammock that ripples in the soft breeze that blows by. The hammock almost scrapes against the ground on one side, because of ten years ago, when that awful August storm crashed through the valley. One of the apple tree's branches snapped and fell, and the hammock caught it, cradling it before it could dash against the cross that marks where she was laid. That was the first time you'd been there since the funeral, wasn't it? Yes, and the last time since. You have the gardens, and the house, and the tree, and the hammock, but you hid the curtains, and you got rid of the horses, you have the same fields, but a new fence. Her hiking boots and trekking poles and gardening gloves, 
the cribbage set that she brought into town every Thursday to play with the girls at church, and the mandolin she was given but never learned to play. These things are in the closet in that house. They are contained, though you tell yourself they are treasured. But true treasures are not hidden. You have the gardens, and the house, and the tree, and the hammock, but you hid the treasures and got rid of the memories. Do you recognize this house? Is it the same as before? When the sun shines on it, highlighting the brown-gray of the boards and skimming the grasses that form its skirt, tell me what you see. Everything is neat, there is no clutter. Not even in the closet. That is contained, after all. The grasses blow the same, and the tree continually yields apples, and you can still smell the sweet honeysuckle after every morning rain. And oh, the sunsets, those are still faithful. The splash of crimson puckered up against the distant shadowed mountains, the soft blue of the sleepy sky above, and the pink that blends it all together. Beautiful. So beautiful. And comfortable, too, when you stand in the swaying grass and watch it all. Yes, your house is still there, in the valley and the rolling hills. All comfortable, just as before. But the horses are gone. The two men had walked the ridge along the saddle and reached the mountain to the left. When Andrew had asked Mac why they weren't going to finish climbing the first mountain, the mountain they descended to reach the saddle, Mac had pointed to the valley, where the small blonde girl stood in the great river, her skirts billowing around her, the strain on her back evident only by the white-capped water behind her, balanced by the peace on her face. This mountain was just part of the journey, Mac had said. You climb the mountain to see the valley. Andrew had seen the valley and the people resting below. The valley girl's words came back to him. Your grief is powerful, and it consumes you. Where am I in you? He shook his head. He was tired, and her words were puzzling, but he didn't have time for riddles. He had to find Pearl. However attractive rest might seem in the moment, to cradle his head on crossed arms, to incline his face to the sun just like the people in the valley below, Andrew wasn't ready to give up. Pearl was here, and he had to bring her home. His latest daydream had proven that. His subconscious had conjured up images of his house and his fields and a thousand other things he didn't want to think about. Things he'd missed, and things he'd, as the dream had said, put away. He squirmed. The Finding Pearl would change that. Things would look different, feel different. He said this when Mac had asked if he wanted to stay for a bit in the valley. It was a ludicrous question. They'd only just begun. And Mac had promised to help him find Pearl not some valley girl. Mac had only nodded in response, and set off on the ridge that stretched across the saddle. Andrew tore his eyes away from the valley, away from the blonde head beneath, and focused his eyes on the towering expanse of the summit in front of him. This mountain appeared to be darker than the other one, and it might have likewise been covered in trees, except Andrew couldn't see beyond the ridge. The chalky shale of the ridge gave way to patches of dark rock shrouded in fog. Rumbling sounds came from within, was it an avalanche? Thunderstorm, answered Mac, but his pace didn't change. He plowed on, the light from his eyes dulling slightly as the first wisps of fog wrapped around his head. Andrew faithfully followed, and the hairs on his arms stood up in response to the dropping temperature. Quickly they were surrounded by the curtain of fog, and Andrew couldn't see five feet in front of his face. He kept close at Mac's heels, panting with the effort as the ground beneath his feet rose in a steady incline. They had left the ridge. They were on the mountain now. 
The wind howled, and if it were possible, the fog was thicker the further they climbed. Thunder crashed around them, and the only light that pierced the clouds around them came from intermittent flashes of lightning, and, when he turned around, Mac's eyes. Andrew's toes caught on rocks, making him stumble. It was frustrating. All he wanted to do was to make it to the summit, to see if Pearl was there. But his mind kept wandering. It was as if every time his feet tripped, his mind was snatched by some other nagging thought. Had he locked the house when he left? What about the garden? What seeds should he plant next year? Certainly there was more landscaping maintenance to do. Not to change anything, but to keep it from becoming too overgrown and unkept. These thoughts were not altogether foreign. In fact, they were reminiscent of a typical day back in his little house. The steady, day-to-day, season-to-season routine that Andrew was sure to maintain. But he didn't want these thoughts now. Now was the time to focus on Pearl. Now was the time to pay attention to his steps. Now was the time to follow Mac. Why were these thoughts intruding? They were comfortable thoughts, and that was what bothered him the most. He wanted to dwell in them. He wanted to be wrapped up by these monotonous, quotidian musings. They were easier. Easier than stumbling through fog and searching for his dead wife. Easier than the potential for failure that this adventure offered. Easier than hoping. Hope was dangerous. Hope was not certain. These thoughts were certain. He missed certainty. But he also missed Pearl. Tripping again on an invisible rock, Andrew grunted. In that moment, Mac halted in front of him, and Andrew's face smashed into the first man's back. Mac turned and patted him on the head. Watch yourself, my friend. Andrew gritted his teeth, kind of impossible to do in this fog, he muttered. Mac looked at him, his eyes beacons against the darkening clouds around them. Yes, it is, ain't it? His voice was low, and Andrew heard something else in it. Something like sorrow. Or pity. Why'd we stop? Andrew asked. Mac turned into the fog again, and Andrew's eyes followed Mac's long, checkered sleeve to where his finger pointed. But he couldn't see anything. He squinted. Deep within the fog, a big, dark shape was moving towards them. Don't be scared, said Mac, almost shouting so as to be heard above the whipping wind. Andrew looked down, realized he was clutching Mac's arm, and dropped his hands hurriedly. Who is it? He yelled, his voice hoarse. The big, dark shape kept coming. He doesn't see us yet, hollered Mac. He can't. Who could, muttered Andrew, but Mac didn't hear him. A bolt of lightning struck somewhere to their left, followed almost immediately by a cannon-like explosion that shook the ground beneath Andrew's feet. Whoever this he was kept advancing, about thirty feet away from the two men who stood motionless in the storm. The thunder rolled around them, and Andrew was suddenly struck by the fact that though the thunder and lightning were relentless, there was no rain. Tally-ho, friend! shouted Mac, raising a flanneled arm. The man stopped. About twenty feet away now, he raised his head, and an imperceptible sound escaped Andrew's lips. The man's face was almost translucent, like the fog that surrounded him. Besides Mac, and if he counted her despite the distance, the valley girl, this was the first person Andrew had seen since he'd left his house in the hills. And like Mac, the man's clothes appeared both worn and timeless. If this whole world were death, Andrew decided, then perhaps the people who were here simply wore the clothes they'd died in. But Mac had never said this was death. Then again, he had never said it wasn't. Andrew peered more closely at the man stepping slowly towards them. He wore corduroy pants and a light jacket. Involuntarily, Andrew's eyes slid down to his own outfit, and his heart skipped a beat. It was nearly identical. We are friends from yonder mountain, shouted Mac against the wind. 
but his indicating arm, Andrew realized, which was stretched towards the mountain they had come from, would have been useless to the man walking towards them, because his eyes were halfway closed. Stopping five feet from them, the man inclined his head towards the newcomers, and Andrew's lips made the same imperceptible sound as before, something between a gasp and a guttural whine. The face of the man in front of him was the most terrifying thing he had ever seen. Indeed, his skin was translucent, and he would have appeared headless in the fog if not for a thick head of jet-black hair, which draped over his shoulders and ran down his back. His half-shut eyes made only his pupils visible, dark wells that sunk into the back of his head. But the most unnerving was the man's smile. It stretched across his white cheeks in a thin line, lips pressed together and upturned at the ends in some sort of sleepy grimace. Andrew had the sense that the man was indeed smiling, but something about the way it appeared made Andrew wonder if his sleep was truly blissful. The sleeping man's smile broke as he raised his hand. Hello. And then, though his voice was musical, the hairs on Andrew's forearms stood up. The man's voice was sleepy too, soft and lyrical, not unlike Max, but unlike Max's voice, the cadence of this man's speech was broken at the second syllable. The O of hello snatched away on the wind in a distinctly minor tone. Andrew was not a hopeful musician like Pearl had been, but it was impossible to miss the haunting melody of this man's hello, and yet the eerie smile. Max's response was cheerful, but his face was downturned. Where do you go, my brother? he asked. The man cocked his head to the side, and his nostrils twitched as the wind swept up. Right here, he said, his smile plastered and his eyes unblinking. Right here is fine. Mac glanced at Andrew, but Andrew's gaze was fixated on the man's face, and then again on his corduroy pants. His earlier daydreams swam to the front of his mind. The rolling hills of his house, the mossy gate, Pearl's tattered hammock in the closet. The closet with all of Pearl's things. Andrew blinked. Mac turned to him, his voice low again and Andrew had to lean in so as to hear Mac's words before the wind, which was howling now, stole them away. He is among the most gone of all of them, whispered Mac. The forgetting people are all gone to an extent. This is beyond what I've seen in my past travels. Seeing Andrew's face, Mac continued. They all smile, the forgetting people. And you can't call them that to their faces, by the way. It would ruin them. Because they come here to forget that they're forgetting. And it's not fair for you and I to remind them. What are they forgetting? asked Andrew. Whatever they came to forget, said Mac unhelpfully. But we all got something we want to forget to Sito. Another person, a moment, sometimes even ourselves. Wandering helps us forget, because if we wander, our minds wander too. And then we don't have to dwell in what pains us. And so we forget. This man, Mac gestured towards the sleeping man, who appeared to be, though his eyes were closed, staring at them, but hearing nothing. This man is hiding from the world, and everything in it that makes him remember. Look at him. Andrew's eyes flicked over Mac's shoulder. He doesn't look at the other mountains, or the great river, and he certainly doesn't want to look at the valley, because the valley is rest and reflection. But that comes with tears, and he can't bear to look at it. It's easier to forget, but forgetting comes at a cost. What do you mean, asked Andrew, wiping his sweaty palms against his corduroy pants? A gust blew across his ankles, and they itched again. It took everything in him not to bend down and scratch. I mean, said Mac, leaning closer, that the forgetting people forgot the word, and everything in it that hurts them. 
they forget the icy cold of the great river that sweeps through the valley, which would hurt to submerge in, but would ultimately refresh them. They don't want the hurt, so they forget it. But neither do they see the sun. Look at this fog. Andrew tore his eyes away from the sleeping man and looked around him. He could see nothing. I don't see anything, he whispered. Exactly, said Mac. Their determination to hide from the world, or to forget whatever they want to forget, makes them hidden too. And whatever they want to forget, or get away from, is only pressed in more against them. And so, day by day, they close their eyes a little more. They walk a little more slowly. Their senses are turned off a little more against them. All to escape. Even this enclosure. Their sanctuary becomes their prison. Suddenly Andrew remembered the first few steps into the fog after stepping off the ridge. How his mind was snatched by thoughts of his house and landscaping and to-do lists. All to keep things as they already were. To maintain the facade that he was okay. At this last thought, Andrew's throat released a little yelp, but it never made it past his lips, which were firmly pressed shut and slowly upturning at the edges. He grabbed Mac's arm. Please, let's leave, he begged, his heart racing, the looming image of the sleeping, smiling man in his periphery, even as he still stood there. Mac gripped his shoulder, his eyes piercing with light against the increasing darkness of the fog. It's affected you since you stepped foot on this mountain, hasn't it, Tocito? The forgetting people come to the forgetting mountain to forget. But that don't mean they don't think. They only think about what comforts them, whatever distraction they've constructed to help them forget. But they don't know it's a distraction, not until it was too late. The two men's heads turned in unison to regard the sleeping man before them, whose eyes seemed to shut even more against the wind and the fog. Thunder crashed and lightning swirled around them, but the man was oblivious to these things. At half speed, he raised a massive hand towards his almost pressed together eyelids, and his smile stretched wider. Yes, he said, his voice low and musical as before. Yes, it is good here. It is a fine place to be. Andrew's head whipped back to look at Mac. But, I mean, he said his voice frantic, does it matter? He believes he's in paradise, so does it matter if he's really not? He's happy. The beacons that were Mac's eyes shone, if possible, even brighter, and Andrew had to close his own against them. Tocito whispered Mac, his familiar musical drawl fading into something that sounded older, years older, aged with pain and loss and the wisdom that came from it. Tocito, forgetting people are never truly happy, because they refuse to seek the truth, and they never truly forget, because what pains them also presses upon them even as they try to forget it. They will only ever forget one thing, and someday very soon, they will forget themselves within their own sanctuary. And to forget oneself, Tocito, is worth a thousand deaths. The wind howled around them once more, and the sleeping man smiled wider. He bent down to the rock shrouded in fog beneath his feet, and he lay down, curled up, and put his head beneath his hands. His eyelids closed the final millimeter between them, the fog surged around him in an instant, wrapping him up. Thunder crashed, and lightning struck the blanket of mist that held the man. Andrew closed his eyes against the storm, and when he opened them again, he heard somewhere from within the fog, I am fine. But the man was gone. For the first time in 25 years, since the day his wife had taken her last breath, Andrew sunk to his knees, pressed his hands and his forehead to the fog's world ground, and sobbed.
As the two men descended the south side of the mountain, the fog faded, and the setting sun sank low towards the valley, where thousands of people knelt, rested, laughed, and cried. The golden orange of the sunset flashed across the stormy waves of the great river, and tangled in the brilliant yellow of the valley girl's hair, which still pooled across the current, rippling with her power. Mac led Andrew down the forgetting mountain's back, as a father guides a small child through a crowd. One of Mac's hands on his elbow, the other at his back. Andrew let himself be held as he stumbled over borders and coughed on kicked-up dust. His eyes watered, partly from the terrain and partly from the memory of the forgetting people, and the vanished man, whose forgetfulness had seduced him and consumed him, reducing him to less than he was until he quite simply was not. In Andrew's mind, the little cabin on the hill, his home and refuge, loomed. The picture he always maintained, the one of goldenrod-scented sunsets and light breezes and cozy fires within, was tainted. As if someone had taken a match to the edge of the portrait in his mind, letting the borders blacken and curl, slowly eating away at the memory it held. The house itself was dark. Windows shut, curtains hidden, jars of preserves in the cellar, unopened and dusty. No fire burned in the hearth, and the air was stale and stagnant. Only the closet was open and gutted, items spilling from its inside. Boots, poles, gloves, a cribbage set, a mandolin, books, stacks of church bulletins, and a second-hand leather purse from Italy. Seeing Pearl's old things, even in his mind, made Andrew's gut wrench and his heart throb. More tears welled beneath his eyelids, and he blinked them back, but the picture would not go away. Even so, despite the rawness of the closet and its contents, despite the harsh, blinding light that poured from the closet that spilled them, Andrew didn't want to look away. The rest of the house and the field and the hills were blackened and bare, and though they were the same, all comfortable and familiar, they held nothing for him. What was once soothing to him was now colorless, a dark gray tinged with the slightest green, cold, quiet, eerie. The vacant, expressionless comfort scared him now. There was no memory of Pearl in these things. And Andrew realized, for 25 years he had hidden Pearl's things away, shoving them in a closet and cupboards, away, away, all to forget the memory of her death, ensconcing him in the house that they shared together, the garden they built together, never dwelling in these things in their relation to her, but simply existing within them. But in doing so, Andrew had not only immersed himself in the act of forgetting Pearl's death, he had in fact succeeded in forgetting her life. All this time he had been trying to cling to her, to preserve her, but he had only shut her away from himself and the rest of the world. She was dead, and he had killed her memory too. Where are you, sweetheart? gasped Andrew, choking back another sob. Where are you, Pearl? Catching his toe on a rock, Andrew lurched forward, but Mac steadied him without missing a step. Clutching Mac tighter, Andrew plodded down, 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 and away from the forgetting mountain. I'm sorry, he whispered into the wind, his eyes burning and his mind swirling once more with the image of his once-beloved home. He wasn't quite sure who he was talking to.
Thank you for listening to Novel. I hope you enjoyed this segment of our story. Please consider liking, subscribing, and reviewing the show to help the show grow, and also so that you don't miss out on the newest episodes. Thanks. This episode was read by Jonathan Keener, written by Shannon Baker, with hosting, production, and original music by Caleb Linville.